Welcome to Tea with PILPG. I'm Paul Williams, the president and founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG for short. Today, over a cup of homebrew lemongrass and cinnamon tea, we will be discussing the situation in Syria and the upcoming ceasefire negotiations planned for early January. PILPG has been working on the Syrian conflict, advising the Syrian Opposition Coalition on peace negotiations and other matters since 2011. Today I'm joined by three young professionals. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the ceasefire. Hi, I'm Chloe. Thanks, Paul, for having us today. Hi, and I'm Ryan. Great. I'm excited about our conversation for the next 20 or 25 minutes to get our heads around the question of what a ceasefire in Syria might look like. Let me first spend just a couple of minutes giving some background to the Syrian conflict for those of you who are not fully familiar with it. Essentially, the parties to the Syrian conflict who've been fighting for over three years are at a position where they might actually be willing to negotiate a peaceful settlement. You have a multitude of forces involved in the conflict, the government, the political opposition, the Free Syrian Army, Hezbollah, the Iranians, the Russians, and you even have the International Coalition Against ISIS conducting airstrikes in Syria and in neighboring Iraq. And then you also have the Al-Qaeda affiliate group, al-Nusra, and ISIS. The time has come when the international community, in fact, 17 members of the international community called the Vienna Group, have decided that we must bring about a negotiated settlement of this conflict. Now, the first step to doing this settlement is a ceasefire to get the parties to essentially stop the conflict vis-a-vis -vis the government and the opposition and focus their energy on the conflict against al-Nusra and the Islamic State. With that brief introduction, let's kick into some questions. I can start with a question. So who would the parties to the ceasefire actually be? That's much more complicated than it might actually seem on its face, Christy. Normally, there's a government and a handful of rebel groups or two states that are in a conflict, and the ceasefire would be between those parties. And the intent would be to stop all hostilities on the territory and move into a peace agreement. Well, here you have two things that are remarkably different. The first is an incredible multitude of parties. You have the government of Syria, headed by President Assad, who's, you know, appears to be largely responsible for war crimes and, and crimes against humanity. You have a number of militias that are affiliated with the government. The government is then receiving support from Hezbollah. And when I say support, I mean men and material. Hezbollah forces have deployed in Syria and are fighting on the side of the government. You also have Iranian forces, which are on the ground in Syria. And as we all know now, the Russian Air Force has set up an air base and is conducting daily strikes inside Syria. On the opposition side, you have at least 75 armed groups that are fighting under the umbrella of the Free Syrian Army. And then you have the Syrian Opposition Coalition, which is the political representatives of the Syrian opposition. You would need all of these parties to sign on to this ceasefire to make it work. And then there are two important parties that you actually don't want on the ceasefire because you're going to continue the conflict against them, al-Nusra, being the al-Qaeda affiliate, and the Islamic State. Given all of these complexities that you're talking about, where would you even start with a ceasefire in Syria? 
and in light of those complexities, what types of things would need to be included to make it be an effective one? Well, for a ceasefire in Syria, you'll need some, some of the basics. So the basics of a ceasefire is an immediate cessation of hostilities. And this is where all parties engaged in conflict simply stop doing what they're doing in terms of the use of force on the day that the ceasefire is agreed upon. You then have the parties, in a sense, step back, create a zone of separation between the hostile forces. And then you would frequently move into some type of either cantonment of weapons or DDR, demobilization, demilitarization, and, and reintegration. The conundrum here, though, is you're going to want nearly all of these forces, the government, the Iranians, the Russians, the Free Syrian Army forces, to continue to be actively engaged in combat, but against al-Nusra and the Islamic State. And so this is where it gets complicated. You very quickly, almost by turning to the second page of the ceasefire agreement, realize that the traditional aspects or the traditional elements of a ceasefire are much, much more puzzling than they are in some type of more traditional or, or conventional conflict. But the idea of parallel ceasefire and an active military campaign against ISIS and al-Qaeda is going to make that very tricky. So, Paul, I have another question for you. If such an arrangement was agreed upon, how do you anticipate a ceasefire in Syria would be enforced? And furthermore, what do you think would convince parties to the ceasefire to follow the terms of the agreement? Well, typically, the parties, well, I should say, ceasefires have an extraordinarily short half-life. Uh, if you look back into the Balkan conflict, I think in one winter there were 36 ceasefires that were negotiated and, and broken. Um, ceasefires are things that, that oftentimes the parties will enter for any number of reasons, um, none of which being to actually cease hostilities or set the stage for a peace agreement. So I don't want to mischaracterize this particular ceasefire being uniquely difficult to enforce, but it is definitely on the more difficult end of the spectrum when it comes to enforcement. There is not a lot of goodwill after nearly four years of conflict between the parties. Sometimes you would deploy uh, a UN peacekeeping force. It's unlikely that many countries will volunteer to send in blue helmets, so to speak, to enforce uh, this peace agreement. Uh, I suspect you might not even get Security Council support for blue helmets to be deployed. You could oftentimes use a Chapter 7 Security Council resolution, but again, one of the major protagonists, the Russians, who will likely sign the ceasefire, but don't want to have some international entity or others empowered to quote-unquote enforce it against them, sit on the Security Council. So they're unlikely to agree to some type of Chapter 7 enforcement of this ceasefire. So this is going to be an agreement where the parties, plus their international sponsors, and as I mentioned earlier, there are over 17 international entities, well, there are 17 states, plus the European Union and the United Nations, which are part of the Vienna process. It's going to take the political will of these 17 plus 2, as well as the political will of the parties, to enforce this agreement. But on one hand, you have a party, as I mentioned earlier, who's responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And on the other hand, you have a party who's composed of 75 distinct rebel groups. It only takes one of those to decide that they want to break the ceasefire and engage in hostilities, and the ceasefire would unravel 
quite, quite quickly. So this is going to be quite the conundrum for those negotiating this ceasefire in terms of answering your question, Chloe, how does one enforce it? The best you'll get is a Chapter 6 resolution from the Security Council and a lot of intense pressure by the United States and others on those 17 plus 2 to keep their proxy forces, so to speak, committed to the ceasefire. So going back to what you said about ISIS, I know the fight against ISIS is going to continue, and how will that impact the various ceasefire provisions or arrangements? This is one of those additional puzzles which will put tremendous strain on the ceasefire. Because normally when you would do a ceasefire, you would do a no-fly zone as well. Because no-fly zones are relatively easy to monitor, and quite frankly, the best way to unravel a ceasefire is to attack one of the parties from the air because it's spectacular and it can oftentimes do incredible damage. But you can't impose a no-fly zone over Syria when the campaign against ISIS is mostly conducted from the air by the U.S.-led coalition and then also occasionally by the Russians. So you won't have a no-fly zone. You oftentimes impose an arms embargo and you say, right, we're going to freeze in place. You're going to create a zone of separation you're going to turn over your weapons, and you're not going to be able to import any new weapons or recruit any new individuals. But you certainly don't want the Free Syrian Army turning over its weapons. It's going to need those weapons to fight al-Nusra and ISIS. You're going to need them to continue to recruit individuals. And whatever the rebels do, the Free Syrian Army, the government will also do, not turn over its weapons, continue to recruit individuals. And they're going to rearm. You, know, you want to have the Free Syrian Army to you know, up its capability so that it can take on al-Nusra, continue to take on al-Nusra and ISIS, and the government will do the same thing. So you'll have a ceasefire in place where the parties haven't disarmed, are continuing to rearm, are continuing to recruit, and are engaged in active hostilities that they're pursuing against ISIS and al-Nusra. Plenty of room for either genuine confusion by attacking some forces from the opposing side, as opposed to ISIS or al-Nusra, or faux confusion, where they actually intend to strike at the entities that they're currently striking against, and then they pretend that, oh, I thought that was, was ISIS or al-Nusra. You know, the Russians are notorious for this. The Russians drop more munitions on the Free Syrian Army in their effort to fight ISIS than they drop on the actual ISIS forces. And it's going to be very difficult to monitor and enforce that aspect of the ceasefire agreement. Uh, do you think that a ceasefire will help us get to the point of having a genuine coalition against ISIS? It's one of our only hopes, Ryan, of getting a genuine coalition against ISIS. There is a coalition now, the United States, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, uh, the British, the French, but the ability of this coalition to have an impact on ISIS we've seen is, is very limited. You need boots on the ground. A number of Kurdish forces in both Syria and Iraq have been very effective at pushing back ISIS and holding territory. Uh, that's the type of boots on the ground that we need and that we need to be providing support and armaments for. Paul, I understand that there's always a danger of ceasefires being used to rearm and reposition troops. How would this be addressed in the case of a Syrian ceasefire? In a Syrian ceasefire, 
as we mentioned, it's going to be particularly complicated because you're going to want to rearm and reposition the troops and allow them to engage in acts of hostilities to use force against al-Nusra and ISIS. So this is going to require intense international engagement and cooperation, which quite frankly we have not had to date. And that's what's going to make this very difficult. It could essentially become a momentary pause with a free-for-all arms bazaar where the government replenishes its supplies, the Russians bring in more lethal weapons, the Free Syrian Army and others arm themselves and receive more uh, technologically sophisticated weapons, the ceasefire falls apart, and we are back to where we are today, but with better armed and more lethal forces going at it against each other in Syria. So you're going to need to create some type of coalition, inclusive coalition, against al-Nusra and al-Qaeda, and there's going to have to be genuine cooperation between the Americans, the Russians, the Iranians, and others, but also, quite frankly, in a way that you exclude, to a large degree, the government of Syria, because, as we mentioned, they're responsible for crimes against humanity and things along those lines. They drop barrel bombs on their civilian population, and you can't just say, oh, we're all friends now, we're going to fight ISIS. You're going to have to have, essentially, you know, multi-tiered level policy where you pull together a genuine coalition, but you exclude from that coalition those that are most likely to do harm to it or most likely to take advantage of the forces that engage against al-Nusra and ISIS, which would be the Free Syrian Army, the Kurdish population, others. And the Americans are going to have to step up and exercise leadership along with our European allies to essentially watch the back of the Free Syrian Army and the Kurdish groups against the Russians, the Syrian government, the Iranians, and Hezbollah. And that's going to take a more firm and more dynamic commitment than we've seen to date by the Americans and their allies. So, Paul, with PILPG's experience drafting ceasefires um, in other states around the world, do you think that a ceasefire in Syria is possible within the next few months? Or do you think that, you know, there may be a possible initial agreement, but that it may disintegrate, as you've, as you've mentioned before? Well, Chloe, PLPG has participated in the negotiation or advised parties on the legal aspects of over a dozen ceasefires. And without any hesitation, I can say this is the most complicated ceasefire agreement that we have ever been involved in. There are so many parties. There's this parallel ceasefire plus coalition against ISIS. There is no goodwill among the parties on either side. And you have the Iranians and the Russians playing a very complicated and very sophisticated geopolitical game. And they have a variety of interests, none of which may in fact be uh, a ceasefire. It may be in, in the Russian and Iranian interest, but they actually may not see it in their strategic interest to pursue this. So it is going to be something that is is not only complicated from a negotiation and from a legal aspect because of all the number of puzzles or conundrums which have to be solved, but also simply from the peacemaking or the peace-building perspective, you have at least two entities engaged, the Russians and the Iranians, who have a long-term strategic plan 
for the region and are implementing it. You have a government who, with forces on the grounds, the Syrian government, which is responsible for you know, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Um, and you have an international community, quite frankly, which seems to lack uh, a strategic perspective for the Middle East. And here I mean the Europeans, the Americans, and a number of the key players, the Saudis, Qataris, and UAE in the Middle East. So I think it's going to be a, a very complicated arrangement. And I'll be hugely relieved when it's successful, but I'm quite cautious at the moment. So assuming that we do end up with this ceasefire, will it actually help solve the Syrian conflict? Well, the ceasefire is just the first step in seeking an end to the Syrian conflict, a negotiated solution to the Syrian conflict, but it's an indispensable step. So there's two primary advantages, well, three primary advantages to the ceasefire. One is it stops the killing. The second is that it may create some goodwill among some of the parties because they get into a habit, they get into a routine of making commitments and abiding by those commitments. And it hopefully buys enough time for a negotiated peace agreement. And this is one of the things that's very concerning is that oftentimes once there's a ceasefire, people forget how fragile these ceasefires are. And then they map out a negotiation process of 12 months, 18 months, when in reality you only have a month or two, even under a durable ceasefire, to negotiate the next phase of a peace agreement and begin to lock in that stability and build upon it to create a real resolution of this conflict. So it'll play an indispensable role, but there's still a tremendous amount of work to do on the peace negotiation side of it once you've got a ceasefire. It just stops the parties from fighting each other. And it's also then the beginning of a genuine military campaign against ISIS and, and al-Nusra, which some say could take a decade. So you're going to have a military campaign in Syria and in Iraq for the coming decade at the same time you're trying to maintain a ceasefire and launch and complete a peace negotiation process between the Syrian opposition and the Syrian regime. Well, thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to know more about PILPG, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or on our website, PILPG.org. If you have a tea or discussion question, let us know on Twitter with hashtag tea with PILPG. Until next time, this is Tea with PILPG, brewing excellence around the world.